Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Judges 3. We're going to look at Judges 3, 15 to 30 this morning. And um, as we started looking last week at the beginning of Judges, we saw how uh, it's kind of an introduction to the book. A summary of the book is how the Israelites, after they entered the promised land, they, they began this downward spiral of sin. And uh, it just got worse and worse and worse as they, uh, as they turned away from God and he would bring judgment upon them. He'd bring other nations to, to um, subdue them and defeat them. And then they would cry out to him and then he'd, he'd provide a deliverer and then they'd have peace and then they'd turn away from him again. And, uh, and it would just be this downward spiral to get worse and worse and worse. This morning we're going to look at the second judge in the book of Judges that's, uh, that's named. His name is Ehud. And um, basically we're going to start in verse uh, 15 of chapter 3, but to set the scene for you, uh, there was another judge before him named Othniel, and uh, after he rescued the people of Israel, they had 40 years of peace, and then they turned away from God. They did evil in the sight of God. They tried to live life apart from him and follow other idols, and so God allowed Eglon, the king of Moab, to conquer the city of Jericho, which is called the city of Palms, and, and then to, uh, to defeat the Israelites. And, and it says the Israelites then served him for 18 years. And so they spent 18 years of, of struggle and misery as they served Eglon. And that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 3. Listen to God's word. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went, in, went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray that as we think about this passage, this account of how you delivered Israel through Ehud, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see how you reveal yourself to us here and help us to see you for who you are. Help us to respond to you as we should. Help us to trust in you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've, we've just finished, I think, a, a season of graduation ceremonies. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have been to a graduation ceremony in the last month. Um, but I got to say, I, I hope I don't offend anybody here. I think graduation ceremonies are like the most predictable and boring things in the world. I mean, I, I will go to a graduation ceremony of someone I love, and I will support them, and I will cheer for them when their name is called. But generally, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, graduations are just excruciating. You know, it's the, the same sort of person stands up first and says the same sorts of things, and then they introduce somebody else who comes up and says the same sorts of things, and then they introduce, you know, the valedictorian or somebody who will come up and stand up and they'll give a speech that's very similar to other valedictorian speeches, you know, hitting all the same themes, um, probably that got their template from the internet somewhere. And, and then they just start announcing the names, right? And it's just this endless, depending on how big of a school your child goes to, it's just this endless sea of names, name after name after name after name. And, and the same thing happens, right? There's a different group in the crowd cheers for that name when it is called, or they, sound, they ring a cowbell or maybe an air horn if they invest in one. But uh, it's the same thing, right? And you're just like, how long? You know, how long is this going to go on? I just have to endure this thing. I just have to get through it. It is so predictable and boring. Um, I, I, sadly, I think some of us tend to have the same attitude towards God as we have towards graduation ceremonies. We kind of tend to think that he is kind of predictable and boring. Um, we have that attitude towards his word as well, that he is predictable and boring. I, a lot of us kind of associate spirituality or relationship with God with kind of rituals that we, you know, uh, observe all the time, whether it's, you know, showing up for church every certain amount of days per week or whatever, or, or as you, you know, progress in the Christian life, as you get more mature, you spend more time doing the disciplines of the Christian life, right? You, you read your Bible and you pray and you do these things over and over again, and some people might think that that sounds kind of predictable and boring, but as, as you read the book of Judges, um, if you just assume that God's predictable and boring, I think you're going to miss a lot of what happens here. Because the book of Judges is anything but predictable and boring. As hopefully you just noticed when we read that last passage. It's anything but predictable and boring. And, and as I said, I, I think one of the things that God wants us to do as we read this book and as we look at this passage is to notice what is different about God. To know him better. Um, to be surprised by him. Okay? And so what I want to do this morning is just focus on two things that God uses in this passage that teach us a little bit about him, okay? One thing that shows us that he's not predictable and one thing that shows us that he's not boring, okay? Um, so first of all, he's not predictable and, and, and by that I, I wanna point out the fact that he uses lefties. He uses lefties. How many, how many lefties are here in the crowd? Boy, not many of you. Have you felt like kind of life is kind of, the deck has been stacked against you in some ways? You know, I, I'm, I'm a right-handed person, so I've, I've lived a very privileged life. 
I don't know what you guys go through. But I do know, like, when I was a kid, there was always, like, does anybody have left-handed scissors? You know, they you know, have trouble cutting things when you're little. I know that, like, instruments, I play the guitar, and I, it's harder to find, you know, a left-handed guitar or left-handed instrument than it is a right-handed instrument, so you have fewer options. There's probably all sorts of other, you know, things that inconvenience you because you're a left-handed person. Um, but uh, back in those days, it wasn't just that you were inconvenienced because you were left-handed. You were actually looked down on. Um, you were encouraged to be right-handed if you were left-handed. Uh, some, in some cultures, they would like, you know, expect you to kind of train yourself to be right-handed and not be left-handed. When you read the Bible, it often talks about handedness throughout the Bible, but it's, it's really um, purely only talking about right-handedness. You, know, you, you notice in, in the Bible, there's often somebody standing or sitting at the right hand of somebody else. You know? um, there's verses where it talks about how God rescues or saves people with his right hand. You know? um, the right hand is a symbol of strength and power, and ability. And so, of course, if you were left-handed, you were looked at as somebody who was weak, who didn't have strength or ability. No offense to the left-handed people in here. Um, but, but you were looked down on. And, um, and so it's interesting how the very first thing, the very first verse we looked at today, um, the person that God chooses to deliver his people through is what? He's a left-handed guy. It says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord in verse 15, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And, and so it's interesting, if you're an Israelite and you're first reading this, you're like, what? I mean, basically, Othniel, the guy who delivered Israel before and earlier in this chapter, he was kind of like, he was kind of like uh, Israelite royalty. He was related to Caleb. You know, one of the spies that went into the, the promised land and was faithful and was a leader. And so Othniel was related to him. He was a member of the tribe of Judah, which is one of like the, the you know, the all-star tribes. And, and so he was a guy you would expect to save Israel. But here, Ehud, a son of a Benjaminite, a left-handed guy, and the Israelites would be reading this and be like, what? How can you save through a left-handed person? How can you do that, God? That's not possible. They would be surprised by God's choice here. But not only that, I mentioned that, that they're kind of left-handed people were looked down on. Um, it's, it's interesting, you, you don't even think about this, but you know what Benjamin means? Benjamin means son of my right hand. And so when he says, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, the, 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 he's from the, son, the sons of the right hand, who is left-handed. Um, but it even, it's even more striking than that because the, the literal Hebrew doesn't say that he's left-handed. It says that he's restricted in using his right hand. That's what it actually says. It's interesting. I, I, you know, all of the different translations tra translate it this way. They say they're left-handed, but the actual Hebrew says he's unable to use his right hand. So it's striking. You hear, you know, he's a, he's a member of the sons of the right hand, and he can't use his right hand. And I think, you know, the, the writer of Judges is, is pointing out this, this is not the guy that you would expect to save God's people. And, and it's possible that that's just how they referred to left-handed people, you know? If you're left-handed, they, they just refer to you as, oh, you can't use your right hand. That's kind of insulting enough. But it's, I think it's also very possible that the reason he's described as unable to use his right hand is because he's disabled, that he can't use his right hand. 
That's a possibility here. And so, at the very least, the left-handed people are looked down on. Uh, Ehud would be looked down on. He would be seen as weak. It's also possible that he was a man who was seen as, 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 as crippled, as an outcast, as someone who could not fight, you know? And yet that's who God chooses to use. Why does God choose to use a left-handed person? Um, well, if you read the Bible, you notice that God does that sort of thing a lot. He doesn't use left-handed people a lot, but he often uses weak people. He often uses people that can't do what need, what's needed to be done, right? He uses women who are unable to have kids to have children, often, to fulfill his promises at times, right? He uses Abraham and Sarah, who are well past the age of bearing children, to bear the son of the promise, right? He, he, Jesus, when he chooses his disciples, who does he choose? He chooses people who are not really you know, educated or popular. He chooses outcasts. He chooses people that are seen as weak to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. God is constantly doing that through the entire Bible. He's constantly picking the people you wouldn't expect the people who might surprise you. And why does he do that? I think one reason he does that is to make it clear who exactly is saving you. Um, he picks people who are weak, people who are powerless to save, to make sure that everybody knows that it's, it's not man who saves, it's God who saves. God is the one who saves his people from, from the, the Moabites here because he uses a man who's not, who you wouldn't think of as a warrior, right? He is the one who saves. And so that's, I think, one of the things that we need to, to remember as we come before God. It's, it's not us, it's not our own strength, it's not our own education, it's not our own achievements. It's him. It is only him who will give us life. It is only him who will give us peace. It is only him and what he does who can make us whole. That's it. And, and that's why, you know, we read that passage earlier in, in, in Corinthians, talking about how God uses the, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, right? Um, he uses Jesus. Where, where's Jesus from? Nazareth. Remember one of the guys said, oh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Jesus was also a surprising choice to enter our world as God and to save his people. And, and how does he save us? He saves us through weakness, through, through a, apparent defeat, a death on the cross. That's how he saves us. Through Jesus' sacrifice and his, his ultimate you know, weakness. That's how we are made, made whole and made right and given forgiveness and made, given, given peace with God. That it's, it's only through this unexpected means and this unexpected person. And so we need to remember to rest in what he does always rather than what we do as we look towards the future to count on what he is going to do, not in what we can do or can't do. Um, but I think in using the left-handed guy, I think there's, there's, this is just one more place in the Bible that reminds us that you don't have to be exceptional to be used by God. You don't have to be exceptional to use God, by God. In fact, God is probably more excited about using you if you're average <laughs> or if you're left-handed <laughs> or if you're weak or if you don't feel like you have the competence to accomplish what you need to do. You know, If you're facing something that is overwhelming with, with work or, or in school or with friends, as a parent, you know, uh, in your marriage, 
God uses people who don't have it in them, who don't, who, who don't have it all together, who don't have the skills that are necessary. That's who he uses. And so we need to count on the fact that he is going to use me. He's going to, be, he's going to use me. As I think about my life, I need to count on the fact that it's not going to be predictable that God's going to enter in and work in my life in spite of the fact that I might feel like I'm very average or nothing special, okay? God uses left-handed people. He uses people who are inadequate. So God uses lefties. And we need to expect to be surprised by him as we live our lives trusting him, counting on him to use us. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing I just want to focus on is this, that God uses laughter. Now, I didn't hear a lot of you guys laughing during this, but I, I heard a couple chuckles. But this is actually very funny if we will let ourselves laugh at it. I mean, um, after reading the story, many of the stories in the Judges, you, I don't think you could ever accuse, I mentioned before, you can't accuse God of being boring. Okay? First of all, there's a ton of suspense here as Ehud goes into to Eglon with, with the sword strapped on his right thigh. You, the, the reason, see, the reason uh, nobody suspected him is because since most warriors, or all warriors, were right-handed, they would strap their sword on their left th- thigh. So any guards would be looking for a weapon, you know, a bulge under his rub, under the, uh, robe under the left thigh. But, uh, but he strapped his weapon on his right thigh, so they weren't necessarily looking for it because he was left-handed. Um, and so there's suspense. Are they going to spot it? Are they going to catch him? as he goes in there, right? Um, there's suspense. Is he going to be able to get close enough to Eglon? What's going to happen, right? And then, and then eventually he, he doesn't at first. He gives the tribute, but then they, they, they leave, but then he goes back by himself. Is he going to be able to get close enough? Is he going to be able to get there, you know, without the, the guards, you know, stopping him? And, and he goes in there, and because Eglon looks at him, and this is why I think maybe he was, he was disabled, you know, Eglon looks at him and he sees him as no threat whatsoever. So he says, silence. He, says, he tells everybody to get out. So all of his guards, all of his servants, they leave and leave him alone so that Ehud can give him this message from God. Right? And then for those of you who like graphic violence, there's plenty of that here, right? Sorry, I tried not to look at you, Ian, but I, I looked there anyways. You know, he, he takes out the sword and plunges it into his stomach, even over the hilt, Right? Um, ask, expecting us to envision what is happening here as the fat closes over the hilt of the sword. And then it gets, you know, ugly as he, he they, they, they see, make it, you know, necessary to mention that the dung spills out. Why? Why does he make it necessary to mention that? And I think that has to do with some of the humor that we get to. Because then after this happens, Ehud then, you know, nonchalantly locks the door, closes it, walks out, and he begins to make his escape, and the servants come. And it's crucial that Ehud needs some time to get away. And, uh, and so when the servants come, they, they're like, hmm, the door's locked. What is that smell? Oh, he's got to be having a hard time in there. He's got to be in there going to the bathroom. You know? Um, and so this is where, like, the humor builds, right? The guys are out there waiting. It gets embarrassing. They're like, I don't want to go in. Do you want to go in? I, uh, you know, the Israelites, as they're reading this, they are laughing at this. They are laughing at Eglon's death. 
it's funny. It's meant to be funny. Um, why does God use humor here? Why does he, why does he move his people to laugh at the, the, the death of Eglon, at the triumph of Ehud? And I think one thing that he does here is in bringing, up, bringing about this, this as a moment for laughter, he's, he's, he's demonstrating, God is demonstrating his complete and total superiority and domination over his enemies. He's saying in a sense, you know, if you stand against me as Eglon stands against me and my people, you will end up as an object of shame and laughter. Because it's, it's, you, you stand against me at your own peril. And so in a sense, he, he uses Eglon as, as one, I'm, I will make fun of you. You know, um, when it talks about Jesus dying on the cross, and in Colossians it talks about how the cross, God uses the cross and Jesus' triumph over death and over sin and over, over Satan, over the principalities of evil at the cross. He uses that, um, putting all of the, the, the principalities and powers to shame. He shames them with the cross, saying, look at how powerful I am. Look at what I can do to you. You are powerless against me. In a sense, he's, he's saying, my enemies are powerless against me, but at the same time, he uses this laughter to remind his people that they have nothing to fear. They have nothing to fear, because look, your enemies are a laughingstock. You don't have to fear your enemies at all. That is how strong I am. That is how complete my victory is for you. So I think that's one of the things that, that he uses laughter for, to, to point out how, how superior he is, how ultimate his victory is. And, and I think we need to be reminded as we think about Jesus' victory for us on the cross, it is complete. It is ultimate. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. From Satan from our sin, there's nothing for us to fear because his victory is absolute, okay? But one other thing I think that God does here is he uses laughter. I think he, he kind of sanctifies laughter a little bit here. Um, he, he affirms laughter as a good thing in life. He even uses this, you know, like really, like, <laughs> he, I, I was taught in seminary, um, you never really talk about bathroom stuff from, from the pulpit. You should never do that. It's too offensive. I was like, I can't get over it here. It's, you, it's, it's right here in the text. I can't, I can't avoid it. Um, God uses very, very mundane, real things here to bring about laughter. I mean, I'm, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of sorry that I don't have the uh, seven and eight and nine-year-olds in here. They would really be enjoying this, Right? Maybe as we get older, we can't appreciate it as much. But I think God sanctifies laughter. He sanctifies humor. He says humor is a good thing. Laughter is a good thing. I think about my own life and the, the, the times when um, there have been times that, that have been hard and we've faced like really difficult challenges, whether it's in our own family or, or in the church or, or just, you know, as, as foster parents. And, 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 you know, often it's the fact that we can laugh in the midst of it, that helps us to get through it, that sustains us through it, you know? I think God intends for us to be a people who are able to laugh even in the midst of pain. Um, 
Back in February, I, I don't know how many of you guys watched Stephen Colbert. He has a late-night show, comedian. Um, he had a, a pop star on his show named Dua Lipa, if any of you guys have heard of her. But uh, he was interviewing her, and he gave her a chance to ask, her, ask him some questions. And, and he's known as a guy who's a, who's a, a Catholic, and he, his faith means a lot to him. He actually talks about his faith a decent amount. And so she asked him the question, you know, do you see that your humor and your faith overlap in any way? Your, does your humor and your faith overlap in any way? And, and he said something that was, um, I think, incredibly profound. He said something that was incredibly profound. He, he said this. He said, sadness is an emotional death. Sadness is an emotional death. But it's not defeat if you can find a way to laugh about it. Because laughter keeps you from having fear and turning to evil to deal with your fear. So laughter, in a, in a sense, helps us from, from turning towards kind of evil devices to deal, to cope with our fear of sadness and pain and loss. And so he says, we, 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 aren't, we, aren't, we won't be ultimately defeated by sadness and pain if we can learn to laugh in the midst of it. And then, and then he says this, he, he said, no matter what happens, you are never defeated by pain or loss if you can see it in the light of eternity. Um, and I take that to mean that, like, as I think about my own faith, you know, um, Jesus Christ has won the victory. And we face a lot of things that are painful and hard right now. But we know that because of what Christ has done, we will have victory forever. We will live in eternity with peace, without pain, without sin, with joy, with laughter. And so whenever we are able to laugh in the midst of pain right now, it's a little bit of eternity breaking in. It's a little bit of a reminder of what we have waiting for us. That, that the pain and the loss will not ultimately win, but that the laughter will. The laughter that we will experience at the presence of Jesus, the living one, the one who has risen from the dead. That is what tells us. You know, that I, I can't help but imagine that, you know, there was all sorts of responses to Jesus after he rose from the dead, but, but there had to have been some, like, compulsive laughter. They, they can't help themselves at the joy that they are experiencing unexpectedly when they see that he's actually alive, right? That is what we have waiting for us. Laughter and joy in the presence of Jesus because he is alive. He is risen from the dead. And so I, th I think this is just one little kind of pointer to that fact. Laughter is a good thing. It reminds us of the victory of Jesus. It reminds us of our, our, what we have waiting for us, the promise of eternity. So let's rest in this God who surprises us, who uses those who are left-handed, who can't use their right hands. Let's, 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 let's enjoy living life with a God who loves laughter and encourages us to laugh because he has one. Um, he's won. I mean, we get to the end of this passage and, and you have the victory of Ehud, the people follow him. I mean, normally, the, the reason, they, they probably would not have followed Ehud, a left-handed man, except for the fact that he has killed the king and then he comes back and he says, okay, follow me. 
And so they follow him, and they, and they utterly defeat Mo, the Moabites, right? But then in the end, what happens? They had rest for 80 years. So that's good news. They had rest for 80 years, but that's all that lasted. That's what points us to the fact that we need a greater judge, a greater king, Jesus, who gives us rest, not just for 40 years like Othniel did, not for 80 years like Ehud did, but forever. And that's why we can laugh today. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to um, laugh today. No matter what we are dealing with, no matter what we are facing, help us to laugh today because of what Jesus has done. Help us to laugh today because of what we have waiting for us. Father, we pray that you would remind us of the victory that you have won, of the fact that we do not have to fear that we can live life without guilt, without shame, that we can live life with you, that we can look forward to the ways that you might surprise us today and use us today. Help us to rest in the one who has won the ultimate victory in Jesus himself. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now going to 